0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 141, The View from Above. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, and other folks about their part in America's space exploration program. And today we're focusing on a very cool science part, honest. When we talk about science being conducted on the International Space Station, we're usually talking about something happening in one of the many laboratory facilities inside the station's modules, the Destiny Lab or the Columbus or Kibo Laboratories. But those are not the only spots where science is done. For instance, last November, we spent three episodes, 117, 118 and 119, discussing spacewalks to restore operations of the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer It gathers data on cosmic particles from out on the top of the station's truss, pointed out towards space. There are a number of other scientific experiments gathering data from out on the station's exterior. Many of them are pointed down. From a perch 250 miles up, the space station provides a stable platform for scientists who are interested in a different perspective on the home planet. One of those scientists is Dr. William Stefanoff an internationally recognized researcher in remote sensing of urban, geological, and ecological processes. He is manager of the Exploration Science Office in the Astro Materials Research and Exploration Science Division, located at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. Stefanov serves as the International Space Station Program Scientist for Earth Observations and at JSC for Remote Sensing of Earth. Today, we're going to talk about some of those experiments and why they matter, including some experiments that turn out the really outstanding photographs of Earth that have been taken from the station. Be sure to check the episode webpage and the show notes because there we posted the photos that we're talking about so that you can see them and follow along. Also, there are links to other sites where you can find other photographs. So, on the occasion of Earth Day... We offer a look at Earth from orbit with Dr. Will Stefanov. Here we go.
1: T-minus 5 seconds and counting. Mark.
0: Long-sleeved light search for the red. There she goes. Isn't we have a podcast? Will Stefanoff, you are described to me as the program science officer subject matter and the subjects of ISS remote sensing and earth science. So what do we mean by remote sensing and earth science in in this context?
1: Well, remote sensing is the discipline and science of collecting information about a material without actually physically contacting it.
0: The remoteness.
1: The remote is, exactly, exactly. So uh, historically, this ha- our eyes are basically the first, the primary remote sensing instrument that we have. Sure, okay. Um, we look around our environment and we can tell things. You know, We can tell, oh, there's a, there's a, that's a carpet, this is a chair, you know, you're a person. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to actually touch any of that to get that information. It's because okay. I just happen to know it, and my eyes are transmitting the information that's coming from light waves, essentially the electromagnetic spectrum, into my eyes, which are capable of seeing a pretty limited amount of the full amount of energy that's impinging upon us.
0: You mean of the whole spectrum? Of the whole spectrum,
1: of the whole spectrum. Mm -hmm. We only really see a very small part of the visible wavelength, red, green, and blue, essentially. And it's up to our our brains to figure out what that information that our eyes are telling us is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And our brains are awesome at that. Uh, We are probably still the best remote sensing instrument ever ever built or developed, I should say. Uh Better than the
0: ones humans have built out of of stuff laying around. In many respects, in
1: many respects. But that being said, we have discovered over time that other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum contain information that is very useful to things like figuring out what minerals are on a planetary surface or what kind of chemicals are in a plant or what kind of stress a plant might be under, what kind of uh, particulates are in the air. Uh, what kind of uh, gases are being produced by an erupting volcano. These are all pieces of information that we ourselves can't natively see, but we can design instruments that can collect that information and then convert it into something that we
0: can see. We can make machines that quote-unquote can see the, and gather that information exactly. from the rest of the spectrum. Exactly. And earth science, is that geology or is it more than that?
1: It's well. I'm I'm a geologist by training, and, and not and to
0: demean geology, but oh uh, no no but, uh, oh you can't demean geology. <laughs> uh,
1: but uh, these days, geology uh, some of us prefer geoscience because the the discipline has expanded to embrace not just the traditional looking at rocks and minerals, but also bringing in what's the effect of plants on the surface. How does that change? How does that affect soil development? How does the atmosphere affect? Uh, how rocks weather and how elements are exchanged between uh, the air, the water, and the and the planet, uh, the planetary materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, so geology, in terms of remote sensing, is kind of a natural fit because if you're a classical geologist, you, uh, you're you trained to do field work. So you get out there and you walk ridges and you make maps based on what you're walking over, what you sample, what you look at. And that's, that's fantastic. That is a critical skill for a geologist. But to understand some geologic processes and the broader landscape that you're walking on, sometimes it's really difficult to get that sense from just being on the ground. I mean, you can do it, but it takes an awful lot of time and a lot of of effort. So what remote sensing brings to the table is it gives you that bird's eye view of the land surface. And when you get up above the land surface and you can see the whole thing, you begin to see patterns in the landscape that are completely evident from the air, that would that are not immediately evident from the ground
0: from a from the persp- a
1: wider perspective exactly exactly so for instance if you're looking at how uh, rock beds are tilted or distributed across a landscape you you can get that information if you go and you walk every single ridge and you map all the orientations of the rock beds
0: <laughs> sounds fun
1: it doesn't well it can be <laughs> depends where you are yeah um, but if you have a remotely sensed image of the area where you can see how the beds are lined up and how they extend from for hundreds of miles it become it can become immediately obvious how the rocks are tilted or folded or how they've been affected by earthquake faults or things of that nature and so that you've got that visual component and then like i mentioned earlier when you bring in more sophisticated remote sensing technologies to where you can look at things like chemical compositions or mineral identification now you've added the ability to to get much more information out of that image for that area than perhaps you as a human being walking by yourself and taking notes in your book can get at Uh, i mean a good geologist can pick up a rock and identify pretty well what kind of minerals are in it and identify what kind of rock it is but for some rock types that aren't so obvious you need chemical information or you need to know all the minerals in the rock and that is information that we can now get from remotely sensed data so it's a it's a great tool for enhancing the ability of a geologist to do their work, and uh, this it's not just geology it's not just confined to geology. Uh, earth scientists, physical scientists of many disciplines can use remotely sensed data. Like if you're looking at vegetation patterns, there are sensors that can give you information that is useful for that kind of discipline. Um, there are people who are looking at how um, disease vectors. Uh, change over time on the surface say as, uh, as areas are heating up or cooling down that can change the plant distributions and that can change what kind of animals you know what kind of uh, prey species predator species exist in those areas and some of those predator and prey species are disease vectors so by understanding how the land surface is changing you can then also get an idea of well is this area going to be more vulnerable to a particular sort of disease less vulnerable you know, things of that nature.
0: And that sounds like that's something that happens over a, a very long period of time. Uh, you don't, you're not it seeing can. those changes in a day or a week.
1: Usually not. Usually not. Okay. But, uh, but sometimes if you have an event, let's like say a volcanic eruption or an earthquake or a large storm system comes through, yeah. changes the land surface dramatically, that can have equally dramatic changes in things like, oh, suddenly we're going to have a mosquito outbreak because... A hurricane has just come through, and now all these areas are flooded. All the uh, any, anything that serves as a little basin, mm. you know, can be, all can the, be a mosquito. All the standing
0: hovered. water where mosquitoes exactly. can breed.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's something where remote sensing can be very useful for because using the right kind of sensor, you can then create very quickly a map of where all those areas are and then get a better idea of what, you know, what might happen in the next coming days or weeks.
0: You mentioned that, that your background is geology. Fill that in for me just a little bit, and tell us about your your professional background. Establish why you know understand this, and I don't.
1: Okay, <laughs> well, I, I've I've had a pretty twisty career path. Yeah, um, I uh, I started out school uh, in Massachusetts, and that's where I first became interested in rocks. Uh, I was like you know many kids. I loved dinosaurs and uh, could name everyone that was <laughs> known at that time, uh, but I also liked uh, had a lot of streams running through. Uh, uh, my family's land and in the streams you streams are great because streams sample all the surrounding watershed and so you can find a whole bunch of different kinds of rocks in the streams and I just became very interested in oh look at these different colored rocks and what do they mean and that's kind of what set me on the path to becoming a geologist um, and so uh, then I moved to Arizona which is paradise for geologists, because yeah. there's you know, not a lot of those pesky plants on types of things, so <laughs> you covering can, you, you, up the precious exactly, rocks. Exactly, exactly. So you can easily see the rocks. Uh, so I spent the next uh, 15 years living in Arizona, um, getting getting my graduate degrees, and then also uh, getting a job uh, as a as an environmental consultant. Oh. So I got I got training not just in the academic side of geology, but also in the hands-on practical. Um, you know, go to this property because we want to sell it, and we need to find out what's on it. Kind of, kind of geology. Um, from there, uh, then I went. Uh, stayed at those at Arizona State University, and I stayed there after I got my PhD. And then I became interested in ecological remote sensing uh, because there was a project there called the Long Term Ecological Research uh, Central Arizona Phoenix site. It's part of the National yeah. Science Foundation, okay. and they had established some new sites looking at cities because there was the recognition then that uh, humans are significantly altering the surface of the planet, and the best place to find out how humans do that is to look at cities. So Phoenix and Baltimore were selected as the two parts of this network, and I was, at that point, with a you know, shiny new PhD, <laughs> I became the, the lead remote sensing scientist for the CAP-LTR project, and there I began to get an interest in not just the hard rock aspects of geology, but sort of the more soft rock aspects. The you know, how does the soil, how does the soil interact with the land surface? Oh. How does the vegetation affect how uh, the geological processes are operating in cities? And what are the what are the environmental hazards associated with cities? Uh, from there, then I uh, got an offer to come to JSC to work with the International Space Station program, training astronauts. And nice. while while that was kind of a departure from what I had been doing, yeah. it's you know how often do you get an opportunity to come and train astronauts you know
0: it's, to do anything yeah
1: exactly. Yeah. And also just to say you know hey I, I actually work on an actual space station. you know I've always loved science fiction since, since I was yeah. a kid so that, that was also like, wow okay, there's really nothing wrong with this offer. <laughs> so, uh, so off uh, off I came to Houston and uh, started working as a contractor for, for many years but became involved with the crew Earth Observations Project, which is the group that since the ISS has been in orbit, they are the ones who have trained astronauts uh, both in taking imagery and also um, collecting it and uh, archiving it for the public to use. And so I was brought in due to my geological background and also ecological background as, as a staff scientist to help train the astronauts in those subjects. Uh, and over time, I kind of eventually became uh, the chief scientist for, for Jacobs Engineering, the company I was working for, and then uh, as the ISS became recognized as a useful platform for other remote sensing instruments, uh, then there was perceived a need to create a, uh, a position for someone who could really lead a group in that phase of the ISS uh-huh, development, okay. uh, developing the ISS not just for astronaut photography but for other types of sensors. And uh, I was the successful candidate for that position, and so that's when I became a, a federal employee.
0: Remote sensing for... Uh, parts of the, of the spectrum beyond the visual part yes and and yes. I want to make that point because we're going to talk about all of them uh, but I want mm-hmm. to start with the visual I want to start with the part that you and I and the people who are listening to us can see um, it's crew earth observations is one of my favorite experiments on the space station um, since Expedition 1, more than 19 years now, mm-hmm. that's been underway. Um, give me the, the thumbnail sketch of what Crew Earth Observations is and what it's aimed to do.
1: Well, it's, it's actually a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the current version of uh, something that astronauts have been doing ever since the Mercury missions. Uh, they have always taken cameras up and taken pictures of the Earth. Because of course they did. It's, of course. It's <laughs> super cool. Why, yeah, what you, else?
0: you went where and didn't come back with any pictures? Right, right
1: yeah. exactly. And, uh, and those initial missions, in fact, when we go to Skylab, for instance, there was a mission on Skylab that, that uh, collected some of the initial data that led to robotic sensor systems like Landsat uh, that has been uh, collecting data in various forms since 1972 and has kind of become kind of the workforce robotic remote sensing instrument. Uh, collecting information about the planet. Uh, but originally it was astronaut photography that set the stage for that. So, what Crew Earth Observations does is we task the crew to look at a variety of different kinds of targets uh, science targets, education targets, and these are targets that are submitted by external investigators. For instance, uh, an investigator who's interested in looking at a particular volcano in South America. So uh, that investigator submits essentially a small proposal to our team, we look at it, verify that this is something that astronaut photography can actually collect data for, and then we set up a target in our system every day. the, uh, The crew earth observations team looks at where the ISS is going to be in its orbit for the next 24 hours to see what the crew has the potential to see. Then they filter that information for cloud cover, Sun illumination, just verifying that, okay, if, if the crew takes an image of this, it'll be a good image.
0: Um, not a picture of cloud tops. Exactly,
1: not a picture mm. of cloud tops, unless that's exactly oh. what we're looking for. <laughs> right, um, okay. So once we get through all that, and then we also look at the crew's operational schedule to make sure there's not, nothing going on that's going to take their attention, uh, like at another experiment, or if there's a, the ISS is being reboosted in altitude, because that changes where they can see, mm-hmm. particularly for small targets. Uh, and then we send that up to the crew so they can see it when they wake up the next day for their next workday. And then it's up to them to look at when those targets occur and decide whether they can go to a window and take an image. So it's not, we don't, we're called, what's, we're, we are what's called task listed. So it's crew discretion as to whether they have the time and, and desire to go and take the images that we ask for.
0: Makes it sound less a mandatory assignment than a, a- a wish list or a suggestion. Hey, if if you exactly. have the time, exactly. uh, to go take this picture,
1: and we found that most most astronauts develop an affinity for doing this. So uh, most of them will make time to go take the images, especially if it's something uh, super interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, we've heard.
0: Of, I know I've heard from a lot of astronauts who talk about how they they get. Uh, fixated on the view of Earth from that perspective, and they spend a lot of their free time in those windows mm. just looking or taking pictures or shooting videos. And this is an extension of that. You're giving them specific targets to, to look at and to try to capture. Um, yep. And I wanna talk about some of the reasons why in a second, but uh, in the broader sense, we can make that sound really simple. Hey, go to the window and take a picture. Do they have to use special cameras to do this?
1: No, they don't. Uh, the See, I,
0: I think that's kind of remarkable. You w- oh, it is. Just a, a <laughs> off-the-shelf camera, mm-hmm. maybe it's got some long lenses or something, but uh, something that, that I may have at home in the closet, astronauts are using in space to take pictures of Earth with.
1: You, you, could, you could absolutely have exactly the same kind of gear that the astronauts use on the ISS cool. in your home. Um, if you have the same long lenses, it's going to be a lot harder for you to <laughs> manipulate them yeah. in, in Earth gravity. Um, but yes, yeah, it's it's all commercial off the shelf equipment. Um, and uh, well, the the current the current make of our cameras is Nikon. I'm, I know I'm not supposed to be plugging. No. <laughs> plugging I asked you what is it? What right, are they right. using? Right, but that's uh, that's the current brand of camera we're using. And periodically, the uh, the Photo TV group here will assess. What is the best kind of camera, the best kind of commercial off-the-shelf camera for the crew to use? So it's not uh, – there have been several different makes of cameras over the years.
0: And you're talking about other specialists on the ground here in Houston who yep. are are experts on the equipment themselves. Yes. They yep. themselves are experts on the yes. equipment. Yes. Um, and these pictures get taken could be any time during the astronaut's workday or any time between wake up and – Bedtime.
1: Yes. Yes, and for some projects, uh, occasionally, with under special circumstances, we can also uh, set up the cameras to for timed imagery during their sleep period. Oh, if there's okay. something that's that's uh, that's particularly of interest. Uh, there was a project that just completed called uh, called the Tropical Cyclone Project, um, and that frequently, there the crew had to set up c- the cameras on a timed basis because the cyclones they were interested in passing over happened to be during crew sleep. Um, so that, that's a possibility, too. But, yes, we try to confine the targets to when the crew is actually up. We don't, we don't want to want them to wake up at you know, 3 o'clock in their morning right. just to go take a picture. Um, but some crew members, if they're totally motivated, they, they will ask us to do that for them. How, how much time
0: might they spend on, on this in, in a day?
1: We, uh, typically, we, we allocate approximately uh, a five-minute window for them to go and take the image. Because the ISS is traveling so fast, uh, that's about all you need to take a specific image, and then you're kind of past where you can take a good shot of it. Uh, so, and we try to limit the amount of targets per day to about three or four, uh, just one because we we realize that this is not a it's not a must do activity to the crew, and they have other things to do. So, and try- they
0: probably will get another chance. And they probably will, and, and they an and they do another few days.
1: And they do, and quite frequently, and sometimes we'll give them a specific target. And for whatever reason, they may not go to the window exactly at that time, but they they know what the target is, so they see it coming up again on a later orbit, and they might they might take an image mm-hmm. of it then.
0: Okay, um, the reasons why any particular target may be selected have got to vary, because as you said, there are a lot of different uh, scientists or researchers who are interested in these targets for for many different reasons. Um, give me give me a, a sense of some of the reasons and i I think one of them i I'm gonna guess you mentioned a volcano um we're trying to record uh historical events natural events I'm not sure how to characterize that um,
1: uh, is yes <laughs> all okay. <of> the, all <laughs> of the above. all of the above uh, yeah so so the the astronaut photography data set is probably it's the longest continual data set of remotely sensed data from from orbit that we have uh it's not continuous necessarily in space or time but in terms of just duration of time covered it's one of the longest uh, duration time records that we have so some of our sites are continuing to collect imagery of sites that have been looked at from the days of mercury Uh, for instance uh, one one long-term target that we have is the Toshka lakes in Egypt and these are lakes that were formed due to an overflow of water uh, from the Aswan Dam when it was created and these lakes have gone up and down uh, over the years. And you've had vegetation forming on the edges and things like that. Right. So it's a, it's a very interesting environmental record of what happens when you have this, this uh, human-caused activity, this human-caused event, and how it affects the landscape. Uh, there's a numerous glaciers that we've been looking at for many, many years, because those have, and most of them, have been shrinking over time just as, 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 the, as the atmosphere is warming.
0: And they also move so very slowly that looking at them over a long time would give you a chance to see the movement, exactly, so to speak.
1: Exactly. And uh, we have, as I mentioned earlier, uh, so we've, we've got a number of different science requests. Uh, educators are very interested in collecting data for their students, and so we have a whole uh, separate proposal process for that where, where schools can send us requests for new imagery if they're interested in looking at a particular area. And this is something that astronaut photography in particular really excels at because it's, it's intuitively understandable to someone. You know, in, in, in some cases, it's similar to you taking a picture out of an airplane. Yeah. You don't necessarily need to be a remote sensing expert to understand what you're looking at in the, in, the, in the astronaut image. And also the fact that this is an image that was taken by a human being on a platform orbiting the planet has sort of an intuitive connection to a lot of people. Uh, yeah. That's different from looking at an image taken by a robotic sensor, you know, just the fact that there was somebody behind the camera,
0: somebody with a live finger. Somebody with
1: it. a live finger, exactly, uh-huh. exactly. And then we we found that to be very powerful for educational purposes. Uh, but right now, right now, the highest priority that we have for crew photography is actually disaster response from the mm-hmm. International Space Station. Um, throughout the world, there's a there's a, an international charter that all uh, agent all countries that have sort of space-based assets have agreed to it's colloquially known as the uh, international disaster charter and when a something happens say a volcano erupts or an earthquake occurs or a cyclone uh, impacts a coastal area the country that's impacted can issue essentially what amounts to a call a call for help a call for data uh, to help them deal with whatever happened in terms of disaster response aid on the ground and so, uh, NASA has a program run out of headquarters, the NASA Earth Science Disasters Program, that JSC. I'm has, sorry,
0: the Earth Sciences. Uh, Earth Science Disaster Diz- Disasters program. program. Okay,
1: and uh, that JSC participates in that as uh, through the ISS program. So when something happens and it's something that the the crew can see, our group here the CEO team will notify the crew that this event has occurred. We'll put together a data package that helps them find where the where the area of interest is and gives them some background on what happened, what kind of data we're looking for. And then we send that up as a, as a high priority target to the crew. And with, if they get data back, it's downlinked to the ground. Uh, our team here then fully geo-references the data. I should probably explain what I mean by with that. What
0: geo-referencing, yes.
1: So, Uh, Since we're talking about commercial off-the-shelf cameras, digital cameras that aren't, they're not specifically designed as remote sensing instruments. So when the astronaut takes a picture of the Earth, there's no inherent information in that image that tells you exactly where on the surface of the planet that is. To identify the target. To identify the target, but also to enable you to drop that image onto, say, a map of the world, say like in Google Earth or uh, a geographic information system. Um, so the, there's no, uh, the pixels of that image don't have any geographic information attached to them. So in the past, we've well, the way we've worked with this is we've taken the image, identified the image center point, and then by looking at other information that is geographically uh, registered, we can then assign a geographic center point to that image. So at least you have some idea where on the planet this image was from. But when you're talking about things like disaster response, where you want to be able to lie, you lay an image down on top of a road network so you can tell exactly, well, these streets are flooded, these houses are impacted, this is exactly where the landslide occurred. If you don't have fully georeferenced imagery, you can't really do that. And so over the past couple of years, we've developed a partnership with a group at Ames Research Center to develop a capacity to automatically geo- fully georeference astronautography. So that when when it's downlinked, we know exactly where every pixel in that image is, and then you can import it into something like Google Earth, and it will lie on top wow. of the the surface correctly. Mm-hmm. And so that to greatly enhanced. Primarily, it's used for disaster response.
0: And I, and I take it then that the the usefulness of this is that it gives people in the area where the disaster happened information about beyond what they can see. Yep. with their own eyes from where, where they happen to be. Absolutely. Uh, and what needs to be done.
1: Yes, uh, exactly, I mean, exactly correct. And uh, and so once we do all that, uh, then we make that data available to the U.S. Geological Survey um, because they, and they put that into their Hazardous Data Distribution System. They're the agency that actually uh, delivers data to requesting, to, the, to whatever the requesting entity was from another country. So NASA doesn't do that directly uh, through that process. And we also send the data to the NASA Disasters Program as well wow. for their use.
0: Okay. Imagery for disaster response. Uh, otherwise, scientists doing research want pictures of stuff?
1: Yes. Yes, they do. For a number of dis- uh, different, dis- excuse me, different disciplines. Yeah. Um, for instance, uh, there's been a lot of interest recently in atmospheric processes, uh, things like lightning frequency, um, things like uh, aurora, and also uh, air glow, sky glow on the planet. And there's actually been several peer-reviewed publications in recent years that have used astronaut photography to to get at that kind of information because another advantage of the ISS is is, uh, besides its particular orbit, it's also the fact that you have humans who can hold these cameras at essentially any angle. So the ISS can take imagery, what we call very oblique images. So instead of just looking straight down to where the ISS is, they can look out a window and take a far, sort of a far-field image. And that's perfect for looking at atmospheric phenomena, because you can pretty much, uh, it would be akin to uh, flying in an airplane, and you look out the window, and you're looking at the cloud deck that you're right next to. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much what the crew can take. And seeing
0: seeing it go both above and below where your eye level is. Exactly. That slice of whatever your target is. Exactly.
1: And so that's that's another piece of data that has been very useful in recent years to researchers Um, another type of data or image that that is becoming more and more popular and uh, both for general use and also for scientific purposes is nighttime imagery Uh, the cameras that we have on the iss right now are are optimized for collecting good nighttime imagery so uh, imagery of cities at night uh, Have become very important to a lot of researchers because they're looking at things like light pollution studies. They're also looking at how changeovers from traditional or traditional, I'd say, 20th century um, lighting, like uh, (laughs) sodium vapor lamps or incandescent lamps, have been now are shifting over to LED type lighting uh, solutions. And there are people who are asking, okay, what's what's that kind of light doing to things like nocturnal animals? You know, is it affecting their 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 patterns. Uh, we we were involved in a project with uh, Kennedy Space Center, where they they they've changed overall of their site lighting to LEDs, and they were interested in how that would affect uh, sea turtle migrations at night. And so we collected some data for them. I, I, I can't tell you what the results are yet. I haven't seen them. But right. But we okay. uh, that's something that they're looking at.
0: Um. I I read too that part of what you can use these for is to to document cosmic events. That's. Seems like it's not stuff on the planet, but but it said planetary transits or meteor oh, yes. showers and yes, things yes, like yes.
1: that. Yes, um, if if the situation is correct, uh, like the transit of Venus is something that has been documented by astronauts. Uh, Don Pettit, when he was up there in one of his missions, he set up cameras uh, in the cupola so that he could uh, record in a time lapse uh, series of the transit of Venus across the face of the sun. Nice, and. Meteors uh, are something that the crew has taken both uh, both by accident. Uh, we've, we've seen sort of serendipitous information, but also if there's a big meteor shower, they can set up cameras to take time-lapse imagery and see if they can uh, see meteor events. Um, that kind of is, is, brings up an, another sensor that was on the ISS uh, recently called the Meteor Sensor, uh-huh. uh, and that was in the wharf, the Window Observational Research Facility, and their whole purpose was to collect uh, record meteors entering the atmosphere, and because when they burn up, the sensor had a uh, a diffraction spectrometer on it, and that was just a way to split the light coming into the camera up into specific wavelengths, so that they could get uh, chemical information out of these these bursts, these fireballs, if you will. Mm-hmm. And from that, they could tell, get an idea of where that meteor originated from, what kind of parent body in the solar system really? it originated from. And uh, so that operated quite successfully for, for a couple of years, and uh, and that was that was pretty much video information that was collected.
0: I, I apparently uh, one source of, of targets too is is it says special request from public affairs office. I've never made one, but I, I, I can imagine that that's you know those people don't ever go away, right? Uh,
1: no. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, we, we frequently get um, get requests like that uh, for big events like the you know the the Houston rodeo. We've had requests: Hey, can you take pictures of of you know Houston for for the rodeo? Oh, okay. Uh, so that we can link it up with social media type accounts. Um, there's uh, there have been requests for other events that have taken place uh, around the world. Uh, say big conferences. We've had requests for for that. Can you get an image of this to tie into that? So, um,
0: of a place, so that we can give it to the people who are exactly. going to be at that place. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So, yeah, those those kind of requests come through not infrequently.
0: I saw an, another reason that I, I found to be really interesting, and I want to f- learn more about it. It says that doing surveys of this planet can fold into helping us do surveys of future of, of future places that we will go. Yes. How so? Yes.
1: Well, the, 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 there's a, a branch of science that we call analog science. And so one thing, uh, one class of target that we have had in the past uh, for CEO for, the, for astrophotography has been uh, impact craters, meteor impact craters, like, like uh, Barringer Crater in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Probably a very very well-known example. Because we see craters on many other planets, a lot more than we see typically here on Earth. Because Earth is geologically is a geologically active planet, so it tends to weather its surface and uh, re, it resurfaces itself um, on a you know on a constant basis, whereas. Uh, bodies like the moon don't because there's no active tectonic uh, activity yeah, going on.
0: footprint that was put right. there 50 years ago still there.
1: Exactly, yeah. exactly. So by looking at features like that on the Earth, uh, looking at river channels on the Earth, we can then look at the surface of Mars, and if we see similar features on the surface of Mars, we can then kind of come to the conclusion that, oh, maybe those are also river channels. Um, and that's, that's, what, that's what you do with analog science. You're looking at features on the Earth that we can find similar features on other planets, and if we understand how the surface, uh, how the feature formed on the Earth, then that gives us a pretty good starting point to figure out what was going on on the other, the other planetary body.
0: Do you have any idea at all how many photographs have been mm-hmm. gathered over over the just in the ISS mm-hmm. years in nineteen plus years?
1: Just for ISS imagery, uh, we're now over three million images, three million
0: yep. individual
1: frames, individual frames. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Many of these are available for people out there. Anybody, anybody who touches the internet can see lots of them. Right? Yes,
1: yes. Uh, in fact, uh, through, our, through our website, um, the, the gateway to astronaut photography of Earth, that we make that data set available to the public, to the global public. Uh, and you can search the entire database. You can download imagery. And we, you did touch on a, an important point that we have over 3 million images only a relatively small fraction of those images have been uh, cataloged. And by cataloged, I mean they they've have descriptive information added to them to help you search through them. So, for instance, what images are, are present in this, or what features are present in this image, you know, like what city, what mountain range, what river. Um, so, what, something else that we have done over the past several years is we have now brought um, the techniques of machine learning. Or uh, artificial neural networks yeah. into our group. And this is, in essence, this is teaching a teaching a machine to identify features in the image. And we've we've now started to put some of these on our website, uh, images that have features obtained by machine learning. And these are things like cities. There are now several cities that once you train the machine to recognize what a particular city looks like. We can then run it through, have it look at the entire image catalog, wow. and tag every image that it finds. So we're now opening up a much larger set of images to the public that they can now search on through this technique, and that's and that's pretty exciting. That's something that 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 I know myself, I've I've been working to push the group towards for for years, yeah. and it's just exciting to see it actually happening. You know that we have the technology to actually do that now.
0: I am aware that people who are Listening to the podcast are going. I would like to see the pictures too, Pat. Well, we've we've tried to make an arrangement for that. Uh, if you're checking the show notes and and the episode pages here, we posted some of the photos that Will and I are going to look at, and he's going to describe for us right now. And the first one we we uh, put up here is one of I, w- I will say a volcano, uh, and I'll allow you to to fill in the difference. But it is a remarkable picture from way above. Uh, a dust cloud on a volcano.
1: It is. Uh, this is Sarachev Peak in the Kuril Islands. And this is probably my favorite volcano image that the crew has collected because uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in it. Uh, that big, the big sort of puffy cloud that you see uh, that's dominating the image, right. uh, that's something called a pileus cloud. And that's formed when the, the volcano erupted. It pushed a huge mass of air upwards, directly upwards, very, very quickly. And when that happens, it condensed all the water that was in the, in that air column right above it. Just because of the pressure? Just because of the pressure and the temperature. Wow. And pushing it up. And uh, so you get this immediate sort of puffball formation. And it doesn't last very long. In fact, the, this, that cloud dissipated seconds after this image was taken. In fact, if you look at the image, you can begin to see that the, the erupting material, sort of the ash and steam coming up from below, is already starting to kind of penetrate it's the cloud. It's coming
0: through the, the sides yeah. around the circumference.
1: Now, this... this uh, clouds have, have been observed before. This wasn't like a novel phenomenon, but this was the first time that it had been seen from orbit and captured in this picture. So that, that by itself is exciting. Uh, you also see, if you look at the image, if you look at the volcano itself further down, you see another kind of whitish cloud, if you will, of material on the side of the mountain that's basically it's that's actually flowing down the side of the mountain and so that's what we would call a pyroclastic flow uh this is actually one of the most dangerous kinds of eruptions you can have and uh and can and can basically engulf you know whole cities and towns uh so they're very dangerous but this this island is not is not heavily populated Mm -hmm. so there wasn't that much of a danger um and then the the big uh, hole that you see in the image uh, that actually caused quite a lot of discussion amongst the volcanologists. You're school. talking about the hole in the cloud. The hole in the cloud, yes. So you've got the pilius cloud, you've got the islands underneath, and you've got this this open space. I guess
0: I assumed that the eruption in the pilius cloud caused the
1: hole in the cloud. That that's one that's one possible explanation. <laughs> okay. Uh, another another explanation is that just because of the the way uh, wind patterns and the atmosphere acts around these islands, during the day you tend to have conditions set up where the, the moisture and temperature changes near the volcano itself near the island to where clouds don't form so you naturally get this ring of hmm. open area around the volcano and so there's there's a camps there are camps that said no that's what's going on there were camps that said no it's the eruption that caused the temperature to change around here and that's why you don't see any water vapor uh, and it's uh it's not clear that there was a there was a winner <laughs> <laughs> in that debate in that debate in that debate uh, there's it could have you know there's there's probably a combination of processes going on in there.
0: That's cool. Let's look at the next one. There's another. Here's another natural disaster, um, but this is I don't know is that a, a hurricane at night, or that, with a spotlight in the middle?
1: That is uh, sort of um, that. This is a shot of uh, of hurricane of tropical cyclone uh, Banshee. and. This was taken uh, during during darkness uh, so it was, it was fairly mm-hmm. not complete darkness but but getting to be dark. And what you're seeing is you're looking right through the, the center of the cyclone you're looking at the, the, eye, the eye wall uh, and you're seeing ha- uh, thunderstorms and lightning going on inside the eye wall and, oh. okay and, and this is also a very, uh, a very very cool picture because the, the ISS was pretty much directly over the storm when this was taken. So you can actually, you can see, you can look right through the storm. You can see water. You can see water. You can, you're actually looking through the eye of the tropical cyclone, and you've got this illumination from from lightning flashes going on around it.
0: Nice. One more real quick, and I, I looked at the description of this, so I, I know what it is, but I couldn't figure it out on my own looking at it. What is a salt glacier?
1: Uh, a salt glacier, that is... Well, glaciers uh, as glaciers are ice. Glaciers are ice, yes, and uh, so frozen water. And glaciers flow because ice can flow over time. It turns out salt can do the same thing. Uh, Salt is salt is not just on your table. Salt salt is salt is a mineral. Uh, It's a naturally occurring form. Uh, It's called halite, sodium chloride. And under the right geologic conditions, you can get large volumes of salt being deposited. Uh, sort of an evaporating lake beds. And over geologic time, those salt layers can then be covered up by other materials, soils, rock, buried under under hundreds of miles mm-hmm. uh, the surface. And when that happens, salt has a lower density than the rock that's above and below it. So if there's any, and it wants to flow, it's not a solid rock. So if there's anything that causes the rock above it to have any kind of crack or any weakness, it can flow through it. The salt will push it up. Okay. And and so that and this is a tie-in back to Houston because if you look around the the eastern Texas area and in the Gulf of Mexico, you see a lot of what are called salt domes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mont Bellevue is a salt dome, High Island is a salt dome. So
0: the strategic petroleum reserve is there.
1: Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's their domes because there's salt under them that's pushing them up. Now okay the salt hasn't actually come to the surface at this point you're just it's like you're uh, it's like you're pushing your fist up under a rug or something and you're doming up the the, the material on top of it but in this case in the Zagros mountains uh, of Iran where this is taken the salt has actually flowed up through the rock to the surface and extruded itself on the top kind, okay. of, kind of like uh, toothpaste <laughs> and so enough of this has come up so through the central salt dome that you see in the middle that the salt is on the surface and is now sort of flowing Downhill, if you will.
0: Just similar to a volcanic eruption, the stuff
1: comes up it, and through, and it could be, it could be for a particular yeah. If you have a very very viscous volcanic eruption, okay, it's kind of similar. So it helps me visualize what, yeah, what we're yeah. talking, how it's working. Yeah. yeah. So what you're seeing here in this image is you're seeing all this salt on the surface, and it's whitest uh, kind of right near the central salt dome. That's yes. where it's coming out, and also you see it's very white in these stream channels that have been cut on the side because that's exposed. The rest of it looks kind of brown. Looks like it dried. Well, not so much it dried. That's all just dust and things that have settled oh, on top of it. Okay. And so, just like a glacier uh, that's flowing downhill, the salt is now flowing downhill as well, and that's why you have all these ridges being formed, kind of along the edges, because that's being formed as the salt is flowing and sort of separating along the surface. Mm-hmm. So, yeah this this was a this was a serendipitous image. Uh, we didn't ask the crew to collect this, but when I saw it. I was, at first I had the same reaction. I was like, wow, what is that? <laughs> and uh, and then I educated myself, oh, it's a salt dome yeah. and, and it's a salt glacier. And it's like, wow, I've, I've never seen one so well developed, but there's actually several of these in, in the area.
0: Cool. Yeah. Um, there are other experiments on the station that are aimed at the, in the visual part of the spectrum, but I wanted you to talk about some of the other experiments mm-hmm. that are not mm-hmm. aimed at that. Um, there are instruments on the station that are not taking pretty pictures for you, for me to look at. Um, what other kinds of science data is being gathered in uh, in, in this broad umbrella of Earth observation?
1: Uh, a pretty wide range of different kind of data sets. Uh, the the ISS is it's now pretty much fully developed as a remote sensing platform in that it can it can host a wide range of different kinds of sensors. Um, you know, we've talked about sort of handheld camera imagery, but right now we have uh, sensors on board that are hyperspectral sensors. And by that, we talked earlier about the electromagnetic spectrum and how there's regions of the electromagnetic spectrum that our eyes can't see, but we can d- design sensors to look at that. So what a hyperspectral instrument does is it looks at these different areas of the spectrum, of the electromagnetic spectrum, and collects data at very, very specific wavelengths. Through that, through that spectral range. And when you do that, you can measure what the reflectance is or the you could think of also as sort of like the power return back to the sensor from the surface uh, in each of these wavelengths. And different materials will have different spectra, you can think of them as, as material fingerprints They if you reflect
0: will. differently and you can identify the, the, what that is down there
1: by the amount of time it takes for a signal to transit not not so much the amount of time but okay. the the degree uh, the amount of reflectance it has in a particular wavelength in in an, one area of the spectrum exactly right, okay exactly exactly and so when you when you look at a, a whole a range of these different wavelengths you can develop uh, a spectral curve and different materials like certain minerals will have a very strong return in say 0.9 Microns, yeah. and it'll have a very low return in 0.8 microns, and so you can look at for specific features and that are very diagnostic of a particular mineral, and so that's why I mentioned they can serve they can serve as fingerprints in a way. When you see these features in a spectrum, you're pretty sure, okay, that's that's this particular mineral that has that feature. So there's there's two sensors on board now that have this capability. There's uh, the uh, the Hisui spen- uh, Hisui instrument which is uh, a Japanese sensor. that is a hyperspectral instrument that just went up on SpaceX 19. Okay. Uh, And then uh, there's also the DSIS instrument, which is a commercial sensor. That's on the Muses, that's part of the Muses platform. And that has, that looks at imagery from, or looks at wavelengths uh, from the visible through near infrared spectrum. So very useful for looking at vegetation, uh, some minerals, and now they're starting to look at it, see how well we can detect plastics Plastics, plastics in the ocean. Um, oh, okay. like as, as floating
0: a, plastic mountains and exactly, yeah.
1: exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the, uh, the the garbage patches. Yeah, in the both Pacific and Atlantic, and uh, so the DSIS team has been looking at their data, and they they think that they've they found a way to identify some of these plastics, these plastic garbage patches in their data. Uh, they're still doing research to kind of finalize that and, and confirm those results, but it's uh, it's encouraging stuff, and. Um, So we have those kind of sensors on board. Um, We also have uh, what we would call active remote sensing. That's a a LIDAR system, a laser laser system, uh, light detection and ranging. And that is the JEDI sensor. That's the Global Ecosystems Dynamics Investigation. And that is a sensor which is a laser pointed at the Earth. And what it's doing is it's collecting measurements of the the vegetation canopy around the planet, uh, forest cover, vegetation cover. And so that's that's the instrument where they're looking at time to return. So the laser oh, okay. is firing at the Earth's surface, and the it's the time that it takes that light to be reflected back up to the sensor is recorded, and the interactions. Well, you need to
0: calculate the distance and know not the really, height of the canopy.
1: Exactly, but you can you can do more with this with this kind of but instrument. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Uh, by collecting enough data, you can also look at how, how often the light has bounced around, if you will, before it goes back up to the, to the surface or back up to the sensor. And so you can not only just get an idea of the height of the canopy, you can also get an idea of what the structure of the canopy is underneath it. Wow. And that's what the JEDI team is doing. They're building this, this three-dimensional uh, map of, of this canopy surface. And they're collecting this data over a couple of years. And the at whole pur- least. At least. <laughs> and the whole purpose of this is to look at how that canopy is changing over time uh, as, as sort of vegetation patterns are changing. You know, how is that changing the uh, the amount of carbon biomass that we have above the surface? Um, we also have sensors that are looking at the atmosphere, not so much the ground surface, but the, the atmospheric column above it, like the orbiting carbon observatory three, which is looking at, the exchange of carbon dioxide between the land surface and the atmosphere. And that, of course, relates directly to things like greenhouse gases mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and atmospheric warming. Um, and all these sensors, oh, and one, one other that I, I should mention is something, another new sensor that we've had on the ISS, a new capability. Uh, there's also the EcoStress instrument, which is a thermal infrared or mid-infrared sensor that's collecting data in uh, those wavelengths, longer wavelengths, uh, essentially seven to thirteen uh, microns. And what they're looking at specifically is heat stress in plants, because in the thermal IR, when you're looking at um, a thermal image, quite frequently you'll be able to see where a plant is overheating, as it, as it were, before you get a visible indication that the plant has some stress.
0: I was wondering how you could see stress. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because I mean, if, if you anyone who's failed at having, uh, you know, raising house plants <laughs> or, or things. You no, know, the, the first thing you see is you see the, the plant yellowing, you know, and that's, an, and that's an indication obviously of stress, but in different wavelengths, you can see indications of stress far long before you see it visibly. And so that's what the EcoStress sensor is looking at. And so all of these sensors taken together have now produced a, what, what you could call an ecological remote sensing suite on the ISS because they're all collecting information that is of uh, interest to ecological researchers and, uh, and researchers looking at plant biology because they'll they'll uh, refer to different aspects of the plant uh, the hyperspectral instruments can tell you uh, what kind of what the chemical makeup of the plant is the ecostress can tell you what its health situation is like and uh, the OCO3 can give you some idea of how that plant is actually functioning how well it's how well it's uh, exchanging oxygen and carbon with the atmosphere and we can do this on a global basis uh, so th- this is what really enables us uh, us ecological scientists um, to really get an idea of of uh, how the planet is uh, functioning or breathing if you will uh,
0: all these that you've just mentioned this this suite they're all relatively new they're not brand new, but they've, they've been up yep. on station within the last year or two. Uh,
1: within the la- Yeah, within the last year or two. Yep.
0: Was it w- put together with all of that in mind, that these were all complementary or studying complementary areas that they all need to go together, or was that luck?
1: Uh, it's uh, well, It wasn't complete luck, um, <laughs> okay. but, uh, but
0: it was. Uh, it was you cl- got to take the luck whenever you can get yes, it. But, yes, yes, uh, absolutely,
1: absolutely. Um, I, it would, I wouldn't say it was completely planned out, uh, as as sensors have gone through the the NASA proposal process and review process, uh, certainly these teams are aware of other sensors going up, and so they could say, "Hey, we, if we put this sensor up, it can serve as a complementary data collection to this other sensor that we know is already either on the station or is going up on the station." But um, but no, I, uh, to my knowledge, there was no pre-existing concerted effort. No to grand put, scheme. No no grand scheme. <laughs> no grand scheme in place.
0: Uh, it, it occurred to me, being a not science guy, that you would get more information on the state of the tree canopies or the, the ground or whatever by being down on the ground and being closer to them in order to, to gather information. Yet all these instruments are doing that from a distance of 250 miles mm-hmm. or, or so. Um, is it ideal to be able to to observe these things from that distance, or do, does that do those findings complement other uh, other data that you can
1: gather? They, they definitely complement. Um, as, as, as we kind of talked earlier, you you get a bigger picture from orbit, um, and and yes, you're you're exactly correct. You when you're on the ground and you're actually measuring, you know, taking measurements from the tree canopy itself, or actually measuring the the girth of a tree mm-hmm. or something. Uh, that's data that is still fairly difficult to get from a remote sensing instrument, but it's complementary. The remote sensing data enables you to extend those really detailed measurements that you get on the ground to a wider area because you can match, uh, say you're looking at a particular kind of tree or to a particular tree species, you can get the measurements that are important for that kind of tree, say it's a broadleaf tree versus an evergreen, and once you know what those values are, You can look at the remotely sensed data and say okay i know that's an evergreen forest so these are the kind of features the kind of measurements i'm taking from an evergreen forest you can then look at the rest of the data collected from other parts of the planet and say oh that matches an evergreen forest so you can start extending your your reach the reach of your data essentially Hmm. so yeah the, the two definitely work together
0: and with these new instruments on the international space station it should be able to contribute more of this complementary data to, I guess, a lot of different scientists who would be able to access it.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, one thing for, if it's a uh, if it's a NASA-funded system on the ISS, then uh, that data is is publicly available. Um, it's a federal mandate that it, mm-hmm. that it be so. Um, commercial sensors, of course, well, they're commercial sensors, so there you you have to pay for those, uh, and other other international partner sensors. Uh, Tend tend to have some, you know, they, they tend to also be publicly available, maybe to differing degrees, uh, than than NASA does. Uh, but that data is also typically available for researchers, at the very least, uh, to do work on.
0: If somebody said, "Tell me the most important thing about the International Space Station as an Earth observation outpost," what would you say to them?
1: I'd say the most important thing for me is is its its orbit. Uh, the ISS has uh, what's called an inclined equatorial orbit in that it it doesn't, it doesn't pass over uh, the poles of the planet like other remote sensing instruments do. There's, or
0: going around at the equator. Or going
1: around at the equator. Uh, so what, what this does, it enables the ISS to pass over different spots on the Earth at different times of day or night. And so from the ISS, you can collect what I would call a fundamentally different kind of data set than you would from a polar orbiting satellite like Landsat. So this, this does a couple things. It enables the ISS, particularly for disaster response, to be to be in the right place at the right time, to be able, for a, literally for a crew member to look outside the window and see something happening. You know, hey, that volcano's erupting. I should take a picture you of get, that. Get a camera. Uh, it also allows the ability for some types of studies, uh, because the ISS has this orbit, it tends to spend more time uh, over the equatorial regions of the planet as opposed to a polar orbiting satellite. So for some studies, that's of, of great importance. Um, like the, uh, the CATS sensor, which was a previous um, cloud aerosol transport system uh, sensor, another LiDAR system, they were particularly interested in looking at the equator because that was an area where they hadn't collected a lot of dense data from other polar orbiting sensors. And it's a very important region for looking at how, uh, how aerosols are transported across the planet. Because that's, that's one of the major transport routes. So in that case, the ISS was an ideal platform for their sensor to collect that kind of information. Um, the other the other aspect is the fact that there's humans on board. You know, I, I right. just alluded to it. The uh, a human being can looked out can make an on the fly decision. Hey, that's there's something interesting going on. I should record that. Or vice versa. Okay, I know you want me to look at this area, but you know maybe your predictions weren't quite. Weren't quite correct, and that's completely cloud covered. So there's no point in me taking that image. You know, the crew member can make that decision.
0: Let's look at a couple last images that that are also pretty stunning. This one, I I think it was called. uh, No, I can't remember what it was called. Something about fishing in green.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. This is this is a this is a spectacular image, Uh, and again, it's it kind of speaks to the the cameras that we have on board, which are. Quite good at taking nighttime imagery. Yeah, what you're looking at here is uh, you're looking at the Gulf of Thailand, and so in the center of the image you can see a city area that's kind of light, uh, whitish-colored uh, lights. That's that's Bangkok. Bangkok. And in the Gulf of Thailand, directly below it and and to the to the left, the west. Just look at the, to the west, yes. Um, I believe that's the west. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you see all these green lights, and what those green lights are, those are lights on fishing boats. And the 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 very cool story behind the fishing boats is that those green lights uh, attract fish to the surface, and uh, and so these are all fishermen out there, but they're not after the fish; they're after the they're after the squid that are that eating follow the fish. the fish, right? And so that's, they're actually they're actually squid fishing, uh, yeah, squid farming, squid fishing. Um, and so that's so you see here. You see a very interesting use of uh, how humans have dis- have used the electromagnetic spectrum to their advantage, because they know the, this green light is what attracts the uh, the, the fish, and then attracts the squid.
0: Yeah, if you think that a a green light on a fishing boat might not be visible from the International Space Station, but yep. there's got to be hundreds, if not thousands, of green lights yep. in this picture. Yep, yep, it's all it's, clustered together.
1: It's a it's it's a local industry.
0: Mm-hmm. One more. Um, talking about evidence of uh, man on the surface of Earth. There's a picture of uh, Dubai where clearly that's a man-made thing. Yes, yes.
1: Uh, yeah, what you're looking at here, this is the uh, the Palm Jumeirah uh, development uh, from Dubai. And uh, this is something that astronauts, ever since it's been... Visible. This is something that astronauts always key in on because it's it's so evident. Yeah, what you're looking at is a is a man-made archipelago that was created by dredging of of material, uh, sand from the sea bottom, and building up these islands. Uh, and I think uh, for the Palm Jumeirah there, that's uh, you're talking about over 50 million cubic uh, meters of material that was wow. dredged up to form those. The uh, the other one that you can see. Uh, off to the right, the one that sort of looks like, vaguely looks like a map of the world, um, that's because it's exactly what it's, it's, meant, what it's meant to be. what
0: it's meant to be,
1: okay. And uh, that's that's uh, hundreds of millions of cubic meters uh, that, to form that one, and I believe that's called the World Islands Development. Um, the So the, this, this speaks to, this speaks very, very evidently to how humans can re-engineer their environments. Uh, this is an area, it's like, well, this was a, this was open water, and we just decided, hey, we want to create some new islands here, and so that's what we did. I got some time. I got the money to do it. Got some time. Got some money. Yep. Um, remind
0: me again of where anybody can try to, to can search and look for these pictures themselves.
1: Uh, this is a, a site called the Gateway to astrophotography Photography of Earth, so you can Google that, and if you want the actual address, it's https colon backslash backslash. Uh, Eol.jsc.nasa.gov. Dot dot dot
0: I think they are actually slashes, not backslashes. But slashes. Slash. Slash. But anyway, <laughs> gateway to astronaut photography. Yep, that's where you'll that, find it. That'll get you there. Yes. Will Stefanoff, this is terrific. Thank you very much for for educating me. Appreciate it's, it.
1: it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: If there is an upper limit on the amount of time one person can spend online looking at pictures of Earth taken from space, I haven't found it. But I vow to keep searching. For more than 19 years now, the International Space Station has provided a platform for people and the machines that they've made and control to keep an eye on their planet for scientific advancement, for self-sustainability, and for just the joy of discovery. You... And you and you and you, you're all invited to join in. Point your Internet machine at one of these websites and you can get lost in your own planet. eol.jsc.nasa.gov is the gateway to astronaut photography of Earth. You heard Will Stefanoff mention it. That's where astronaut photography from all crewed missions is posted. Space station, space shuttle, and more. Another, ESRS. .jsc.nasa.gov slash ESRS is the site for the Earth Science and Remote Sensing Unit. They have information on current, past, and planned sensors that are posted on the International Space Station. One more, issearthserve.jsc.nasa.gov, that's the Space Station Instrument Integration Interface, it's a search tool for multiple International Space Station datasets. We've posted all these links in the notes on the episode webpage for this episode at nasa.gov podcasts. I'll remind you also that you can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at all the NASA JSC accounts. When you go to those sites, use the hashtag AskNASA to submit a question or suggest a topic for us. Please remember to indicate that it is for Houston. We have a podcast, and you can find the full catalog of all of our episodes by going to NASA.gov/podcasts and scrolling to our name. You can also find all the other exciting NASA podcasts right there at the same spot where you can find us: NASA.gov/podcasts. Very convenient. This episode was recorded on January 30th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Gary Jordan, Nora Moran, and Belinda Polito for their help with the production, to David Brady and the International Space Station Program Office for suggesting the topic, and thanks to Will Stefanoff for a great conversation and the outstanding pictures. We'll be back next week.